Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and here we are, June 17th, 2021, and as is so often the case. I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Bill Padalo, who is joining me on the show today. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Always good to be with you. Absolutely. Appreciated. So I think a lot of listeners are aware that the uh, June 30th foreclosure moratorium day is looming and it's it's out there. I will be talking about, but I'm kind of looking at it the last call for uh, for those who haven't exercised their rights under the moratorium. <clears throat> and of course, there are a lot of good reasons not to. There are also some quite good reasons to use it. And I will be giving legal advice on that, as I often say on this show. And the intro music, both at the end and the at the beginning and the end of this show makes clear that we don't give legal advice on this show. It's a topical show. And we discuss all things foreclosure related. And we are going to address again today with Bill, that's what we will take on first, the ever-present, uh, seemingly never-ending fount of deep crystal information that is the WAMU to chase bankruptcy and the supposed transfer of legal interest from WAMU to chase in that bankruptcy of 2008. And as Bill and I have documented many times on this show, as well as Neil himself having done this, there are lots of problems with the legal claims coming out of that bankruptcy. And there are lots of issues that when all added up tend to show that the transfer of legal interest, specifically the ownership interest and all of the derivative claims that devolve from that supposed ownership interest that it's all a big uh, fiction, if you will, and the legal interest is simply not there to justify Chase collecting on loans that come out of that bankruptcy framework. And Bill has got some even more interesting analysis uh, on this issue, and to the extent that he can address pieces of that today, 
uh, he is going to take that on. Uh, the, the short of part of what uh, Bill will be talking about uh, in a more general way is uh, simply, uh, and I, I, I'm thinking of this, uh, I'm not trying to be too provocative, but I am thinking of this little uh, description related to today's show, and that's kind of a Leninization of, of how Chase handles their litigation. And what I mean by that is Lenin infamous, infamously repeated many times the, uh, I don't know that you would call it a syllogism, but it's certainly a word uh, descriptor who, who, that critical to the political action of the Soviet communists. They were always and forever asking, who is the actor who will benefit? And the who of, of who is being acted upon uh, is meant to be the victim and meant to be the party not benefiting from whatever the transaction that who whom implicates. And the way that uh, that seemingly far-field analogy works here is there's a lot of convenience in how Chase litigates. When Chase is litigating with borrowers on the other side of the court, they have a very strong policy of claiming full legal interest, ownership interest, to the extent even where they can't show it, in specific cases. Uh, but it, in short, the right to collect on the mortgage and the note. Interestingly, when they're litigating against investors or the insurers related to these securitized loans, the whole pool of loans and a specific uh, you know, securitized trust what you see Chase do in those cases typically is they're disavowing, in essence, that they have a connection to the loan at issue or the securitized trust, the pool of loans at issue, in such a way that they would be liable to either lenders or, again, uh, essentially investors in the uh, the securitized pool and the insurers who essentially were backing the investments that were made. So it is a great curiosity um, and one vein they're disavowing connections to the loan and the other vein the one where they're dealing with borrowers they're constantly insisting that they have the right to collect and they're not disavowing their connections. So uh, it would be helpful, Bill, if you would break this down for our listeners today. It does seem to be quite the conundrum. <laughs> well, it, it, it has been quite a conundrum. Um, it's been one of the most egregious um, fact pattern story heists um, uh, when it comes to the foreclosure of homeowners on WAMU loans by Chase claiming they got it to the FDIC probably in, in, in history. Um, 
you know, I've obviously, uh, for listeners out there, those who have been following me on my blog, you know, I've been investigating this particular thing for over 10 years. And I've probably written dozens of, uh, dozens of articles, um, as, uh, information was becoming, um, clearer or as evidence would present itself, you know, in these cases across the United States. And so it's been, um, uh, a very long battle here to, uh, put this whole entire puzzle together and to figure out what happened. Um, last September 3rd, I posted a article on my blog, if anybody wanted to go back and read that, that I think it was a pretty detailed breakdown um, of what's going on. I titled the article, J.P. Morgan Chase's scheme to steal Washington mutual mortgages is not conjecture, it can be proven. And at that time, I, I you know, I laid out a lot of information there to uh, to support um, my reasoning and, and whatnot and the evidence in that article. Well, um, things have continued to uh, present themselves now to a point where um, I, I'm, I'm confident that I have uh, solved the mystery, so to speak, um, on this entire scheme and, and to, in great detail. And... Um, I know this is going to be a bit of a teaser to most listeners because I, um, I'm not in position at this very moment to divulge uh, specifically what uh, I've now uncovered and the evidence and facts that's now uh, come to light, but I can uh, assure listeners who's, who've been affected by this possibly that the, the information is going to come out, um, and I would say not in the far too distant future. Um, I think this evidence is uh, very explosive. Uh, it shows without any doubt uh, the, the scheme and the conspiracy, really, um, of J.P. Morgan Chase and, and even the FDIC who's been complicit to all of this um, in allowing this uh, uh, scheme to um, continue through all these years where uh, they've essentially... Uh, have taken all these assets, which we, I can now show and prove. Uh, the FDIC never had it, never had anything to convey, uh, never had anything to sell to Chase, and yet they used the FDIC and FIREA basically as the end-all blocker. And we've talked about FIREA before on this show <laughs> uh, with you, Charles. Is they used FIREA to, um, you know, basically block homeowners' constitutional rights or, or it violate the constitutional rights to due process by homeowners by saying uh, these loans went to the FDIC, therefore if you didn't file a claim or because of FIREA, you can't uh, hold us liable. Uh, we're free to go and run and do whatever we want, and that's been Chase's position. So, uh, And courts have been quick to slam the door saying, well, no jurisdiction under FIREA, end of story, nothing to see here. Uh, very egregious stuff. Um, and so in, in all of this evidence now, um, I can <laughs> what it really breaks down to, and a lot of people, and I really want people to focus on this in particular, is that there's a difference between, you know, liens and title, okay? So everybody out there, and I've said this before in past shows, uh, and I've blogged about this, anybody who was foreclosed on by Chase claiming they got this, they got the lien or the loan from the FDIC purchase assumption agreement, and therefore they, it was it was acquired by, via a purchase through the PAA. Um, 
they not only got nothing, but if you look at the purchase and assumption agreement in section 3.3, there's a uh, a paragraph in bold letters talking about the manner of conveyance, limited warranty and non-recourse, et cetera, it says. And in that par particular paragraph, and I'm just going to read it out loud, this is very detailing because uh, I'll, and I'll explain where I'm going with this after I read it, but it says the conveyance of all assets, including real and personal property interests, purchased by the assuming bank under this agreement, shall be made as necessary by receiver's deed or receiver's bill of sale, as is, quote-unquote, where is, quote-unquote, without recourse, and except as otherwise specifically provided in this agreement, without any warranties whatsoever with respect to such assets, express or implied, with respect to title, enforceability, collectability, documentation, or freedom from liens or encumbrances, in whole or in part, or any other matters. Why is this so important? One, there's never been, as far as my investigations show, any receiver's deeds that have been recorded in the chain of title showing that Chase got the particular asset in a purchase from the FDIC. All right, so... Uh, that was essential, but what the FDIC is saying here is that you're buying this stuff as as is, and as the POAs explain as well, the fake POAs, uh, they're not warranting anything regarding freedom from liens or encumbrances. So the information that um, has now come to light, and I know people are, are going to be very anxious <laughs> to to want to know this information, but. Um, if you had a loan and let's say you came and said, Bill, can you find or identify the trust where my loan is? And everybody's been focusing on uh, naming the trust or identifying that this loan has been in the trust, okay? We have to put that sort of to the side and get off this whole idea that first the trust exists and that the trust ever owned anything to begin with or anything was transferred because None of that ever happened. Nothing has ever been transferred to any of these trusts. There's never been any documented um, uh, uh, documentation of any of the trans transactions where the loans and the notes were endorsed to the trust. This was all admitted, okay, by uh, WAMU and their SEC filings. So um, there's been no documentation of that. So let's put the trust thing on the side, uh, and then. The next question is, well, if you can't identify a trust, and Chase says, well, it's bank-owned and we got it through the purchase and assumption agreement, you know, we have to prove, prove, prove it was securitized. Well, you know, my opinion has been it's, it's, they, they were all securitized, uh, one, because Washington Mutual's business model was to originate and then securitize, sell, and retain servicing. Their business model, they, they securitized everything. Okay, and then those certificates and their off-balance sheet activities were blasted all out over the world and polluted the whole world. It's, I mean, that's a, that's a well-known document, uh, documented very well in the Senate panel investigation of the financial crisis, so on and so forth. So, what I've uncovered and what I've, uh, you know, gotten to now is that I, I can I can show now where those liens sat and who had who the investors were. Okay. Um, regardless, and this applies to every single loan 
out there uh, that had WAMU on it that Chase says, no, we got it, we owned it, and we got the lien. No, false. And uh, and so this information is going to be, it's going to come to light. It's going to be very explosive. Um, I can say I would love to to break that story on uh, this this show after uh, all the years of being on this blog uh, for Neil or whatnot. Um, but I can say I now have the attention of uh, major media, who is now um, all over this. I now finally have the attention of major politicians, who are now going to, uh, at least I believe, or are showing the interest of being all over this. And this is going to be... Um, uh, a very uh, explosive story. And the reason why I'm kind of teasing and putting it out there right now is um, because I just I want, I want people to understand that um, all hope isn't lost, I, sh- I should say what I would hope not once this information comes to light. Um, because again, talking about the title side of things, um, there and I, I'm not going to speculate or get people's hopes up to but I'm just saying there could potentially be recourse for many people who have uh, been steamrolled in this uh, major scheme. And um, and I'm uh, I'm very delighted, very excited in many ways um, to, uh, to 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 get this story out there and in the hands of um, the right parties now because this is a doozy. This is a, this is a doozy. Um, we've known it for a long time, but now um, irrefutably, I believe it's now uh, that the puzzle uh, is uh, virtually complete, at least to prove that um, Chase got nothing from the FDIC. So, um, I'll take. Do you have any questions on any of that, uh, Charles? Uh, I mean, not at this point. I think. You know, it's important for you to be able to kind of push this information out uh, into the public, uh, including to the listeners of this show, through a format and in a timing that, um, you know, in essence, you, you've got everything lined up, uh, which I believe is, is kind of what you're alluding to right now. You've got everything lined up in such a way that um, this can this can be done to demonstrate what you're claiming, uh, but it can also be done in a way to be able to respond to any blowback or any, frankly, interference from the other side. Uh, because let's get real, uh, the, the the attorneys. Uh, the private investigators such as yourself and then you you also in your private investigating capacity do forensic loan audits uh, and bore down into very fine detail you know on the securitization of of these loans and you I think have become one of the best sources of information and documentation on the, the whole WAMU Chase scheme, and short of what I'm trying to say is, listeners should stay tuned. Uh, we're providing what we can today. There will be more forthcoming, and it sounds like from what you're saying, Bill, even in the near future, but certainly in uh, some kind of midterm uh, 
real time base. Uh, I will say, um, you know, this dovetails with the update that I, I uh, will will start to address now on the COVID front. Uh, I think a lot of listeners uh, are tired of hearing about, and even I myself am tired of talking about COVID. Uh, it's one of these aspects to our lives, though, <laughs> that is so all-encompassing uh, that uh, it's kind of hard to avoid, frankly. And it does continue to infect, and then it's very much wormed its way into every aspect of the legal system, access to the courts, access to attorneys, all kinds of rules on uh, attorney appearances, how pro pers uh, need to do their uh, appearances in court. And, you know, the National Foreclosure Moratorium, of course we've talked about that quite a bit on this show because millions of people are impacted. And, you know, we've gone over the alphabet soup of all the different federal loans, and it really does include everything, including the USDA loans. Includes VHA, includes you know Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, on and on, and yes, they've all been protected to a meaningful extent during this moratorium period. And I don't have any information uh, yet. I'm curious if you have any information, Bill, on the moratorium um, being extended. Uh, well, I, 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 I do have a question, though, for you, Charles, I, and this just kind of uh, came sure. to my attention, especially for California listeners, is that um, I was informed that uh, this moratorium was going to be lifting end of June and that some of the document filings for the non-judicial process, like the notice of sales, um, they couldn't begin until uh, – I think it was something May 26 or something because there's this 30-day period, right, um, before they can actually go to sale. But um, I'm now hearing that, um, and people are squawking, that uh, notice of trustee sales have been filed um, beginning early May um, without their notice. They're not being uh, served properly. Um, they're finding it out to the grapevine, and so they're kind of jumping the gun a bit in California. I'm, I'm not sure. You uh, Maybe you can confirm if there was some uh, uh, deadline before they could start filing this stuff, but I'm hearing, though, to the grapevine that they're, they're, they're trying to get the jump on it, and they're doing it prematurely without people's notice. Uh, I, I have heard some of that, and, you know, as always, the rules are – Somewhat complicated, complex, convoluted. It's absolutely the case, though, that the mainline approach to this is supposed to be that a sale won't be scheduled until uh, after the moratorium lifts of June 30th. Um, You know, some of these properties going to sale, they aren't subject to the national moratorium but they often will have been covered by either a county or because there are a lot of county boards of supervisors in California that have been covering properties with their own moratoriums. There's the state itself, though generally the state 
has devolved that to a kind of county-by-county basis. Um, and, yes, the, the California-based ones, including not literally all counties, but most counties, are going to end the moratorium at the end of June. And now that California has, has opened up, uh, I believe, and again, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but even the counties that had not, um, had not uh, agreed to go with a June 30th date and they were still extending beyond that time, uh, I think county by county in California, the moratoriums are absolutely coming to an end as, as they are nationally and so many other states have already uh, begun, uh, not just foreclosure, but eviction proceedings. Um, Texas does have to wait for those covered by the national moratorium. Uh, but, you know, there are still millions of loans out there, of course, uh, that have a securitized component to them, yet they're not government-backed in any, in any way at all. Uh, I would say that's less of what we uh, get involved with and, and less of fewer of what we see in terms of the total number of loans that, that come to us through, you know, the, the borrowers who come to us for, for help and advice and information. Uh, but the bottom line there is there are a lot of private loans that I think are going on the, the sale block now uh, because one of the aspects that's been delaying uh, sort of mass foreclosures going back uh, onto the uh, auction block is all the COVID rules are so complex and, and interlocking and frankly, uh, down to the detail of everything, uh, there was arguably not a clean way to even conduct an auction sale because they weren't being conducted virtually. They, they, they didn't make it to the virtual platforms like Zoom or some other place online, a platform online like the video platform Zoom. So they were still being held uh, live, and it's the expectation that all of the auctions that are going to be opening up now will continue to be held live. So there were a lot of restrictions on what that would look like. And as of, as of uh, June 15th, this week, in California, things have overwhelmingly opened up. Uh, there are still some limitations and, and restrictions of various kinds, but it has largely been an opening. There's no question that the auctions are going forward now. I think some have jumped the gun, and I think some have been of uh, government-backed loans where they're violating terms, but it's also the case some of these auctions going forward are um, of non-government-backed loans. Now, on the eviction front, there are a lot of issues there, of course, and there are some counties like Alameda and other counties around San Francisco where I don't think evictions are going to really be going to trial until August or later. Uh, In San Diego and Southern California, Riverside, they are absolutely starting to open up again. 
So that's something that uh, those who've already been foreclosed on and are holding on to their property, uh, they do have to be mindful of what is going on in the eviction uh, arena. And that is very much dependent on the state that they uh, are living in and where they had the foreclosure happen. And absolutely in California, it's county by county. You have to really know what your specific county is doing. And uh, county courts are still a good source of information for a lot of the frameworks that borrowers and uh, post-foreclosure individuals need to access to ensure their rights. Uh, As always, thank you, Bill. And uh, you will be back next week. And we will be with you. Thanks again, Charles. Absolutely. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.